Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday Dhamma session. Today is also the day of our bi-weekly international monastic sutta discussion. So if any of you want to come watch that, that will be three hours from now. I'm not going to broadcast it anymore, but you can watch it on Facebook or YouTube. I put a link up on my Facebook page. Maybe we, I'll post it in the announcements on our Discord. Maybe someone else can. And today we're talking about the Mangala Sutta, which is probably one of the best suttas to for this format. Better than the Karaniya Metta Sutta a little bit, I think, because it's a little more broad-based, a little more general, a little more universal. The, uh, the Mangala Sutta has so much in it. So uh, if you're interested, if you don't know too much about the Mangala Sutta, or really for anyone, honestly, please uh, consider checking it out. You'll get different perspectives from different monks, maybe some stories. Uh, we're doing the first 15 blessings. I'm doing the 15th one, so if you want to hear me talk, you've got to wait till the very end. Starts in three hours, it goes about an hour and a half, so I'll be talking in about just over four hours. I'm going to talk a little bit about the same topic today, uh, right now, because we will all get to hear a more fleshed out version. I'll only be talking, I think we only get to talk about five minutes each, because there's 15 of us or more. So I'll go a little more in depth. Today's topic is on one who lives by the Dhamma. I've talked about this before. Some of you may have heard this talk before. Uh, dedications and gratitude to my teacher, Ajahn Tong Siri Mangalo, who's the one who first brought to my attention this sutta. He used to teach this sutta. There's two suttas on Dhamma Vihari, one who lives by the Dhamma, in the Anguttara Nikaya, Panchaka Nipata, Yoda Jivavaga. A book of fives. And in these suttas, they're almost identical. A monk comes up to the Buddha and asks him, Dhamma Vihari, Dhamma Vihari Iti Bhante Uchati. It is said, one who lives by the Dhamma, one who lives by the Dhamma. Kitabatanuko Bhante, to what extent Bhante is a bhikkhu Dhamma Vihari? one who lives by the Dhamma. Vihari comes from the word vi, 
the root v uh, the prefix v root har we har in regards to dwelling in regards to living if you ever heard of a vihara it's a place where someone lives you often hear it talked about as a place where monks live monasteries often have a vihara which is the place where the buddha statue lives One who lives by the Dhamma, lives in the Dhamma, lives the Dhamma, really living it, living the Dhamma life. And the Buddha gave five potential types of people who could be called Dhamma Vihari. He says the first one is someone who fully learns the Dhamma, all the different aspects of the Buddha's teaching, the talks that he's given to others, the verses he's recited, the past life stories, the Abhidhamma, all of this. People have, someone's memorized all of it or, or learned all of it. But having done that, they don't do anything else. They let the days go by. They don't go seek out solitude. They don't practice samatha. They don't cultivate samatha or vipassana. But they, they're full of dhamma. The Buddha said, Bhikkhu Pariyati Bahulo, no Dhamma Vihari. Such a bhikkhu is called a Pariyati Bahulo, one who is full of learning, Pariyati, not a Dhamma Vihari. You don't live by the Dhamma because you've learned the Dhamma. This is something we should all know. This should not be news to any Buddhist, something we maybe forget, something some people never learn. But if you've been involved with our group for any length of time or, or any Buddhist group worth its salt, you know that you can't just learn, you can't just study. Like that monk Ducho Potila. His name was Potila, which means book. And maybe that was a nickname, I don't know, because he, he was like a book. He knew all the Buddha's teaching, had it memorized. He went to see the Buddha, thinking that the Buddha would be able to talk to the Buddha about the Dhamma. Maybe the Buddha would give him some praise. And the Buddha called him Empty Book. He called the monk who knew all of the Buddha's teachings by heart empty he was like an, an an empty plate in a restaurant he had a menu in front of him but no food when you're sitting waiting for food and you read the menu you could memorize the menu and still have an empty plate
The second type of person, they've learned all the Dhamma, and then they go around teaching others. They don't seek out solitude. They don't cultivate samatha or vipassana. They let the days go by. But they teach. They teach others. Parisang deseti. The Buddha said, well, this type of person is called a panyati bahulu, someone who is full of instruction, full of good, good teachings. Good at teaching. There was one monk in the time of the Buddha who was like this as well. Teaching everyone, all of his students became enlightened, but he himself was still an ordinary putujana, an ordinary worldling. Until one day one of his enlightened disciples came and said it was said he had come for a teaching. Without any appointment, he just came to him and said, I've come for a teaching. The teacher said, oh, I have no time for any teaching. And the monk said, I'm not here for, for you to give me a teaching. I'm here to teach you something. You have no time for yourself. You have no time for what's important. And this teacher realized that he was just wasting his time. And he left. He went off into the forest. But he was such a famous teacher, dwelling in the forest alone. He had all that he had pressure on him. He felt he felt great pressure to succeed in his practice, thinking to himself, What will people say if I don't become enlightened? Here I am, this person who supposedly knows all of the Buddha's teaching and what if I can't realize it for myself? So he walked and he sat and he walked and he sat. But because he was so keen on it, let this be a lesson. Because he had such craving for enlightenment, it became a huge hindrance. It, it, it completely blocked him from enlightenment. This is when people talk about uh, wanting to meditate. They say, well, you talk about giving up wanting, but you want to meditate, don't you? Well, if I want to meditate, that's going to be a hindrance for me. You can't do meditation because you want to meditate. We don't. Not everything we do is because we want to do it. And the more you want something, the more you desire to become a sotapanna or become calm or to see clearly, the harder it will be for you to to gain all of those things. And so eventually he broke down from the stress, collapsed, and started crying. Alone in the forest, or so he thought. He was sitting there crying to himself, totally dejected, and suddenly he heard someone, some other crying. And he looked up, and he saw this radiant deva, an angel, 
who was a, a forest angel crying in front of him. And he said to the angel, he asked the angel, why are you crying? And the angel looked up at him and said, oh, well, you're such a famous teacher. I thought, well, if you're crying, that must be the way to practice. <laughs> so I started crying. This angel had been following him around thinking, oh, if I practice according to this great great meditation teacher, I too will become enlightened and so followed everything he did, including when he started crying. And that was enough to sober up this monk and make him ashamed of his failings. And he eventually did practice to become an arahant. So, don't just teach others. The third type of person is someone who recites the teaching. Now, if you're not a monk, this might not be, or a cultural Buddhist, let's say, someone who was brought up Buddhist. This might be unfamiliar to you. But in Buddhist cultures, there are people and monks who engage in chanting as their main practice. Monks, of course, the Buddha was directing this towards monks who spend all their time reciting the Buddhist teaching. It was an important activity in order to keep the teachings in mind. Of course, that's not someone who lives by the Dhamma. Was once a monk in the time of the Buddha who before he was ordained a monk, he was a follower of another sect and he had all these mantras, I guess. And the Buddha said, oh, we have a special mantra, but you have to become a monk to learn it. And so he became a monk and the Buddha taught him the 32 parts of the body. And he thought, what kind of a mantra is that? Hair, teeth, nails, flesh, skin, so on. Thirty-two parts. But when he started chanting it, of course, because it's such a bizarre thing to chant, it engages the mind with the the actual body, and so he became aware of the loathsomeness of the body. Loathsomeness in the sense that there's nothing beautiful about the body, and our attraction to it is based completely on delusion. There's nothing beautiful about the body, and yet that's how we see it. So it helped him let go of his attachment to the physical body, which is a very important attachment. As a result, his mind became calm, and he was able to see more clearly and attend to the Buddha's teaching and become enlightened. You can't become enlightened just from chanting. That being said, as this story shows and other stories like it, mantras can be quite powerful. They help bring, atten bring the attention of the mind to, the, to a certain object. 
mantras related to metta are great for overcoming anger and so on. And of course, the mantras we use in insight in satipatthana practice are great for bringing about vipassana, clarity of mind. Fourth type of person is someone who thinks about the Dhamma a lot. Study the Dhamma and they spend a lot of time thinking about it. Thinking about the Dhamma is a problem we see in the suttas. Various places. There was once a monk, Malunkya Buddha, started thinking about what happens to an arahant when they die. Uh, asking, thinking about what, why hasn't the Buddha taught this? Why hasn't the Buddha taught about the world? Is the world finite or infinite? Past, future? Is there a beginning of time? Is there an end of time? And all these other things. Not to call anyone out, but I think you could, I think we should be uh, circumspect in, in our asking of questions. It's a good point in regards to these sessions that sometimes questions can become speculative. So when you have a question, try to uh, ask yourself first, whether that question is important. This is why we categorize questions into those that really need an answer. Questions for which an answer would really help the person asking, as opposed to questions that are simply asked out of curiosity, thinking, vitaka. Vitaka bahulo, one who is full of think, full of thinking. Even thinking about your meditation practice, Anuruddha had this problem. Anuruddha was was very great in his meditation practice. He had magical powers and he was able to encompass the cosmos with his mind. But he wondered, why am I still not enlightened? And Sariputta said, oh, you asking yourself, why are you still not enlightened? That's part of the problem. Thinking too much. The fifth type of person. Fifth type of person is a Dhamma Vihari, one who dwells, who lives by the Dhamma, dwells in the Dhamma. This type of person has six qualities. So if you're Writing things down, you can write this down. Six qualities of one who lives by the Dhamma. Number one, Narinchati number one, Natdivasang Atinameti. I don't let the days go by. Don't waste time. Don't say to yourself, I'll practice tomorrow or next week or next month or once I retire. Once I'm dead, I don't know whether death could be even tomorrow. Start practicing the Dhamma today, now. Right here, we're sitting here together. 
you don't you aren't distracted by my face don't let yourself be distracted by my voice take it as an object of practice number 2 na rinchati patisalanam they don't abandon solitude someone who is not a dhammavihari is someone who abandons their solitude means they have the place for meditation they give it up they leave their solitary abiding in order to seek out company Solitude is important for the development of meditation, even if it's just a room that is empty. Because it's not so much about the noises or the sights or smells, etc. As it is about the interaction with others. When you start to interact with other people, your mind leaves your own experience and gets caught up in the conceptual world of conversation and interaction sorry did i say six four four, four qualities not six qualities the third quality is Anuyunjati. Anuyunjati ajatang jeto samatang. Four qualities. This is number three. Anuyunjati. Yunjati relates to like yoga. The word yoga comes from yuj. Anuyunjati to become connected with or to uh, work towards, to apply oneself to. To apply oneself to inner tranquility. This is this is a, de, a, a description of samatha. To cultivate inner tranquility, and there are many ways to do that. You can cultivate it first, of course, with the many different types of samatha meditation. You can cultivate it as a product of, vipa, of vipassana meditation, satipatthana meditation, which is what we do. Ultimately, it's an important part of dwelling with it with the dhamma because you can't expect to see clearly when your mind is not free from the five hindrances five hindrances are a very important object of meditation something to be overcome and number four uttarinchasa Uttarinchasapanyaya-atang-pajanati Uttaring-atang-pajanati Asa-atang-pajanati To be a Dhamma-vihari, you must come to know fully the meaning 
of that Dhamma. Asa atang pajanati. Come to fully know the meaning of that Dhamma. Now, if you just heard that, if it, if it was just that, it might still sound like something that you could learn intellectually. But the Buddha says, Uttaring, the higher meaning. Uttarinchasa panyaya atang pajanati. Come to know the come to know fully the higher meaning of that Dhamma with wisdom. This is about as clear a description of vipassana meditation as you can or vipassana as you can get. Pointing out that true wisdom, true understanding is higher than any intellectual study. It has nothing to do with learning, it has nothing to do with thinking. It has, of course, nothing to do with teaching or chanting. It's what you get from applying the teachings to your actual experience and seeing the truth of the teachings for yourself. And that's, of course, what we do in our practice. Samatha and Vipassana. So that's the Dhamma Vihari Suttas. Very good, simple reminder for us of where our priorities should lie and how to avoid the pitfalls of becoming just someone who knows the Dhamma but doesn't taste the Dhamma. And that's the Dhamma for today. I will take questions if there are any. Okay, let's begin. Is it correct to resolve to stick with the main object to a small extent, or might that just be a nice way of saying forcing things and is incorrect? You should resolve to see clearly whatever is happening in the present moment. Tata means whatever. You repeat the word is repeated to mean that or that, meaning whatever, that one, this one, whatever's present, that's what you should resolve to do. I once heard you talk about not bothering to meditate unless one is keeping the five precepts. Is smoking cigarettes considered a drug? Smoking cigarettes does not break the five precept, the fifth precept. Is it considered a drug? I think you could consider it a drug. It's not good, of course. It's an addiction. And it does have an effect on the mind. So in the spirit of the fifth precept, it goes against that spirit. And therefore, like coffee, like anything like that, even any kind of caffeine, um, certain types of painkiller, you know, my father was on Percocets once. He was in an accident, and I got to stay in the hospital with him. And they put him on Percocets, and he started hitting on the nurses. He's married, and happily married, I think. And uh, but he, he doesn't even remember doing it. I talked to him afterwards about it, but he started singing and uh, acting a little bit like a 
well, an unmindful person. So things like Percocets are, are an example. I would say might even break the five precepts. I would be very wary about taking such pain medication. But the other thing I was just putting out this, one of the first booklets of questions and answers and on morality. And as I, as I explain in there, the thing about the precepts is they're not commandments. So it is good, to, it is useful to know what breaks the five precepts. But to be clear, you're taking these on for yourself. So be clear about what they're actually referring to. Um, but don't see them as like commandments. They're something you take on for yourself. The special thing about the five precepts is that if you don't adhere to them, it's very hard to be born a human being, let alone practice meditation. My doctor said I must withdraw from my SSRIs over many months. Should I not bother to meditate until they are out of my system? No, no, not at all. The reason why we don't um, accept people to do the intensive course is because of how intensive it is. You can't be expected to gain the results we're looking, we're, we're striving for in the intensive course when you're on something like an SSRI. That's all. It's not that you can't expect to gain any benefit from meditation. That's not true. Your benefits will be limited. I, I guarantee that. I've seen that with my experience dealing with people who are on such medication. There's no question. It's it's quite obvious that your results are limited, but that goes for many things. So just understand that in order for long-term intensive gains, you really should go off, go off them. But that can be hand-in-hand -hand with your actual meditation practice, you know. People were very upset sometimes when we explain this to them that we weren't going to accept them but it's a misunderstanding of of the nature of the course our, our meditation courses intensive meditation courses are hard we're really pushing you you know if you're not there yet you have to get there before you do the course that's the whole point point. have the same thing with our at-home course I've told people they have to do an hour a day and they get upset when I tell them they can't continue because they're not doing an hour a day and I'm not saying you're not you're, you're you're a bad person or you're you're what you're doing is not useful it is useful if you do a minute of meditation that's great but we have minimums for a reason it's not it's not possible to get where we need you to get if you're not doing an hour a day the at home course is not really going to work either and the at home course is much less than the intensive course so that kind of thing don't don't not meditate for any reason there should be no reason why you say oh i'm this way or that way so i shouldn't meditate or shouldn't meditate yet not not divasang atinamiti don't let the days pass you by i sometimes worry i'm noting the wrong thing and i note worried confused etc but if you accidentally note what's often only slightly less prominent than something else, do you still benefit at all? So first of all, I'd say you should note worried rather than anything else when you're worried. Oh, you do note worried. There you go. But if you accidentally... There's no, there's no wrong. Meditation isn't magic. 
you don't get it right when you pick the right thing to be mindful of. You get it right by learning about how your mind works. So what you're doing is fine. And that's great. Not worried, worried. Just keep doing what you're doing. I have no advice besides that. You're not doing anything wrong. Is Mita recommended for people who suffer from self-harm and self-hatred? If not, what else can help people with these problems? I feel as if this impedes my ability to practice. No, I, I, don't, I don't abide by that Mita for, for self-hatred. It's true that Mita in general helps with hatred and so can help with self-hatred, but self-hatred is it's a bit different. You don't send metta to yourself for that reason. I, I maybe, I would I would argue, self hatred is much more related to conceit. Um, it's much more it's much, helped much more by practicing satipatthana. Because metta deals with concepts. It, metta how how it works and why it works, is because. It, it digs deep at this conceptual relationship uh, perspective when you are experiencing in terms of beings. Oh, this is my father, this is my mother, this is my sister, my brother, my husband, my wife, my friend, my enemy. When you're, when you're in that mode of, of experience, metta cleanses it. And as a result, cleanses the underlying reality of our, our anger. Because metta deals with beings, but when you say "May I be happy," it, it, it's not so useful. At that moment, you're having experiences of anger and self-hatred. You're much better to switch to the mode of of ordinary experience, because when you're looking at things from an experiential level, there's no self. There's no. There's nothing to hate. You know, all you're left with is the feeling of hate, and that you can be mindful of. Don't be afraid of hatred. Don't let it overwhelm you or let it discourage you. It's just a feeling. When I start feeling the quality of air or spaciousness with the quieting of the mind, I begin worrying I won't be able to go deeper or sustain it. Any advice on overcoming this hindrance? The first hindrance is the desire to feel that quality of air or spaciousness. That's a common, common hindrance that is misunderstood as a hindrance. Your desire for that, which leads to your worry that you won't be able to go deeper or sustain it. You only worry about that because you want to go deeper and you want to sustain it without any indication that that's the right way to practice. It's not the right way to practice. It's not what we're looking for trying to go deeper, trying to sustain that, is only going to create stress and suffering when it's not permanent, because it's not permanent. Your practice, whether it be samatha or vipassana, should never be about that. It should be about focusing on the object that's in front of you. That's the real hindrance. You're only worrying because you want. Stop wanting. Start focusing on the things like worrying, but also the wants, the desire. Focus on the distraction, whatever it is that you don't like about your ordinary experience that makes you want to go to some quiet or spaciousness. If you haven't read our booklet, 
I would recommend reading that. It sounds like you might not have because that's not really how we practice or what we focus on. If you have, then maybe consider taking the at-home course. That might help you understand better. I feel discouraged because I have so much chronic pain and I feel as if I will never get deep tranquility in meditation because of it. Do you think that it is still possible? It may not be. Tranquility is not an easy thing to gain if you have lots of pain. Fortunately, that's not what we're focused on. We've come to the right place in our in our practice. We are able to we 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 teach a more streamlined approach that doesn't rely upon those intense states of of calm and concentration and tranquility. You don't need them. You don't feel discouraged because of the chronic pain. The chronic pain is is of course a, a condition, but it's not just the chronic pain, because you can feel chronic pain without feeling discouraged, of course. So try and separate those two. Don't think of it as, I'm always going to feel discouraged because of the chronic pain. You can feel the pain without getting discouraged by it. If you see it in that from that perspective, you can eventually overcome it. Pain is just pain. If you haven't read our booklet, recommend reading that. Maybe do an at-home course, that might help. There are links in the description, I think. It's all free. We don't charge for any of this, so don't be afraid. Sometimes worry and doubt arises about results, and I think, am I on the right path? I note each one of those, but how should we be reassured that even if it's tough, that we are in the right path? Um, I would try not to get caught up in being reassured that you're on the right path. When when those thoughts come up, they're actually a part of the practice, dealing with worry, dealing with doubt. Think of it more like that. Because the funny thing is, you're always seeing results of the practice. They're just not what you expect most of the time, in the beginning anyway. So whenever those worry and doubt come up, don't try and solve it by assuaging it let it mellow you know when you have worry let it marinate i mean let it let it be there and and taste the worry that's more important because true results come from understanding worry understanding doubt understanding the things that are triggering the doubt and worry so that they don't cause doubt and worry so when you think to yourself am i on the right path say thinking when you doubt say doubting when you worry say worry don't look for reassurance. That's a very important thing. Don't look for reassurance. When you're not reassured, when you're worried and doubting, that's what you should be focusing on. Once those are gone, you won't need reassurance. There'll be nothing to be reassured about. And you see the practice, you see the, the, the progress in that. Because once they're gone, wow, isn't that progress? Staying in the present moment makes me miserable. What is the point of staying present when it is unbearable? It's terrible. Reality is terrible. Reality has reality is worse than illusion in every single way except one. Illusion is preferable in every way. You know that with these um these sayings, imagination, creativity, 
to live without imagination think people think is so dull because imagination you can be anything the that reading rainbow song uh when you read a book you can fly higher than a butterfly or something hold on there's a there was a poem we studied in high school hold on to your dreams in life for when dreams die life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly or something like that and these are all wrong they're all wrong imagination i would say creativity is is uh, suspect certainly imagination past future oh you can dwell in such wonderful things in the past in the future what's the one thing that reality has it's real and that's always going to trump everything else reality can be all those things it can be wonderful it can be peaceful but you're not going to get there without work the illusion can get you there immediately all you need is a little bit of thought poof you're there read a book watch a movie play a game none of it's real and because none of it's real i mean that's the one it's, it's in the end it turns out to be the one important quality because in the end it only makes you less happy and as you see your, your present your, your reality becomes more miserable reality isn't miserable because you're staying in the present moment staying in the in the present moment just helps you see how miserable you really are it's only that way because your mind is not clear your mind is not trained in a way it's like withdrawal from a drug think of a drug addict drug addict is the ultimate extreme example of this idea because imagination only deals with chemicals in the brain right you think about what you want it makes you feel pleasure in the brain drugs do that as well so it's not in fact just about staying in the present moment because even the present moment can be drugs when it's um, when it's full of pleasant experiences but then you get attached to those pleasant experiences and you suffer when they're gone so the the reason why meditation makes us miserable is because it doesn't offer any of these brain chemicals it's withdrawal from them there's nothing miserable about the present moment it's like saying the weather is miserable it makes you miserable weather isn't miserable it makes you miserable It makes you miserable because of your desire for something different that's all once you're able to face the present moment once you get a little stronger in the mind a little more centered a little more content a little less clingy a little less greedy you'll start to see the reap the fruits and eventually reality becomes a place you can live at peace with comfort why should you stay in the present what is the point of staying in the present moment because it's real because you'll never get that from illusion but again not just staying with it but a better question would be why should you give up craving why should you give up wanting 
Because wanting will never give you the one thing that is most precious, and that's contentment. Contentment, the greatest gain that you can never get from wanting. Satisfaction. I would like to challenge myself into meditating for one month, one hour a day from 7 to 8 a.m. How can I be resolute but flexible too? Do you have useful tips to help with this? Um, I guess the most useful tip is to get a teacher and do a meditation course. We have this at-home meditation course that you could sign up for. I really push that because because it does work. It's like if you're learning some skill, like let's say a language. If you ever studied a language on your own, it's very difficult. Unless you're very disciplined, There's, it's so much easier to learn a language when you have a teacher or, it's, or to learn anything, really. It's night and day when you have a teacher who, who is challenging you and giving you exercises and keeping you on a routine, on a schedule. But ultimately, it's up to you. You just got to do it. I would say one thing is don't be discouraged when you quote unquote fall on fall off the wagon because you can always just start again. Just make sure you have that attitude of always trying to start again. After a noted experience such as thinking disappears, I have an intention to return to the stomach. How should I note this intention? You can note wanting or intending. You can also just go back to the stomach. You don't really have to note it. But if it's very glaringly prominent, yeah, you can note it. Can you please tell me a bit about practicing vipassana? Whenever I look it up, there is so much focus on going to a retreat to understand it. Is it so, or can it be learned anywhere? Well, the problem, again, just as I just said, as with learning it anywhere, is it's harder to do on your own. So what we've done is we've created an at-home course where you have to practice on your own, but you meet with a teacher once a week who guides you through the course. We have a booklet on our website. If you want to learn it, you can read that booklet. And by reading that booklet, you can get started on your own. Many people have done that. I've talked to people who start the at-home course and they've already been practicing according to the booklet for even a year or more. Does illness in the body make the mind sick? I have seen the mind's objective attachments increase with someone who is near death. Can the teaching be understood if the mind is like this? No, I mean, that's the point, is you have to practice to bring the mind to a place where it can understand the teachings. The whole of the practice is from getting to, um, getting from a place of attachment and mental illness to a point where the mind is healthy enough to see clearly. But does illness in the body make it that way? No, except that when the mind is sick, illness can 
trigger the mental illness and without mindfulness the mental illness gets worse because it reacts to the physical illness but it's still not caused by the body because of course a person who is mindful can have physical sickness without getting sick in the mind attachments increase not because someone is near death or sick but it's because of how they react to that sickness which is again a good reason for being very vigilant when things are good when you're healthy don't become negligent about health negligent about youth negligent about life because you'll lose all of these things and then where will you be old sick and dead How concerned should we be with reducing our carbon footprint? I've reduced mine, but it's staggering how often I'm faced with choices that relate to this, and it's hard to reconcile any conveniences I use. So this is not a top-tier question. I guess we're out of them, which is fine. But um, I guess a couple of things. First of all, I don't think personal actions are necessary and from a, a or necessary or sufficient and from a buddhist perspective society has to change um, it, it's not about people reducing for example their carbon footprint it's about society changing it's about us changing the way we think of resources it's about public policy and if you really want to help, you should be talking to your, um, your, your writing to your member of parliament, organizing, and that sort of thing. How important is it from a Buddhist perspective? I, I think it's barking up the wrong tree, or it's what's what would be the word? What would be the the idiom? It's maybe putting the cart before the horse. It's doing things backwards. It's kind of like, uh, here's a good one. It's like closing the barn door after the horses are already out, or whatever that saying is. Because by the time the environment is is in such a bad place, or or by the time we get to the point where there is this gross excess use of fossil fuels for example or destruction of the environment and so on use of resources uh, it, the 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 cause the cause it has preceded it by a mile which is which is greed and so if you want to make any effect you have to combat our greed as a society. So I, I would say a two, two, two pronged approach because there is certainly a lot of misinformation and uninformed people. The environment is a good example of, to some extent, just how ignorant we are. We just don't realize as a society, and that's changed a lot. Like in the '90s, well before I was a Buddhist, I, we were—I we, was involved with the environmental movement, and we were um, fighting to educate people. And people, there was just really very little 
knowledge about such things as global warming and climate change and so on. Um, and, and that's, I mean, that's not really a Buddhist teaching, but it's an interesting thing about how the same goes for Buddhism or for anything really. Sometimes it's not because people are bad or the world is full of evil and corruption and the human race is just irredeemable. It's just that we don't know. And that's the case with a lot of things. Take this COVID situation. We just don't know about masks. In Asia, they knew about masks. And in many places in Asia, that was a boon because wearing masks, like in Taiwan, where my brother lives, everyone just started wearing masks because they already wore masks when they were sick or when SARS came or that sort of thing. They knew about it. It wasn't that they're better people, I don't think. It's just that it was already a part of their culture. Whereas in America, wearing a mask for many people is an affront to their dignity and their culture. It's very much against such things. And that's a problem. Um, and and you, you see that with Buddhism as well, like take the five precepts. I was shocked when I heard about the five precepts and when they were related to me as an important part of meditation practice. And I felt so so sad that no one had ever sort of taught us that before and that our culture doesn't, our culture actively encourages the breaking of the five precepts, right? In Thailand, many people break the precepts and in Buddhist cultures in general, but at least they know that it's, that they're there and many people can keep them as a result or at least feel like they, they're breaking precepts when they break them. So that's an aspect, and with anything like this, that's a part of it. You can't just blame greed. However, the, the bigger cause is the greed. It's just we have for a long time cultivated greed, cultivated consumption, uh, this whole idea of econ economic growth, is such a terrible delusion related to greed, related to desire. We don't need growth. We don't need economic growth. We need economic stability, contentment. And we have to start ar arranging our economic systems in that way that are according to the Dhamma to bring people uh, decent and... Uh, equitable livelihood and and lives people can survive and not have to worry about food shelter medicine the basic necessities of life that, that people actually have to worry about at the same time others are getting rich anyway i've gotten off track but it's all tied together because our greed for consumption, our need for more, for, for, for convenience, for pleasure, one of the symptoms is the destruction of the environment. We can't get away with it forever. It's not sustainable and it's getting worse, or it's gotten worse. I don't know if it's getting better now. Hopefully it will start to get a little better as we start to wake up. But they say it's going to take a real transformation of society, and that's a... Buddhism has some something to say about that because absolutely, of course, Buddhism will help us make this radical transformation of society, but the radical transformation of society is very much in line with the Buddhist teaching. Yes, not just to save the environment, we need a radical transformation of society. Also to be in line with the Dhamma, we need a radical transformation of society. 
we need to go in the exact opposite direction we've been going for well, probably forever, I suppose. It's been downhill all the way, I think. They say eventually we're going to start wising up, but it's probably going to take a little bit more than it's already taken. If you consider the last century, if you consider the century that that I grew up in, I grew up at the end of the last century, after all of the horror, the last century before I was born was full of horror. I grew up during the Cold War. Right? I was born during the Cold War, but I didn't really have much understanding of it. And much of the horror of the Cold War happened before I was born still, but before the Cold War even. World War II, if you learn about the horror of World War II, they carpet-bombed, fire-bombed entire cities. There were entire cities in Germany, I think, that were on fire. Imagine the city of Toronto or New York or California or Bangkok on fire, people being burned to a crisp. They would mow down crowds of soldiers with machine guns. The machine gun was invented, I think, or, or you know, the, those big army machine guns were invented for World War II. And the number of people who died, the number of bombs that were dropped, the landmines that were placed in the Second World War, I don't know the Second World War, I guess. In Vietnam War, more bombs. So my point being that the last century was pretty horrific and we still didn't learn our lesson. Nothing, nothing really profound changed. Maybe, especially out of the Cold War, there's been a reduction in large-scale warfare, which is good, certainly. And many people say things are getting better. Maybe we're, we've already turned the corner. I don't think so, but I think the next one is going to be the climate emergency. Diseases like, like COVID are going to get more common. Lifespan is going to be reduced. And there's going to be the collapse of, of maybe not the collapse of society. I'm not that doom and gloom, but there's going to be stress on society and there's going to be great trouble. I think it'll take something like that to really wise people up, and hopefully then there will be a turnaround and societies will start to be established, uh, will start to be based on proper principles of contentment, Buddhist principles. I think by that time Buddhism might be... There's an idea, I think, if we follow the the orthodox narration, Buddhism will be gone by then. So that might still be quite a ways out. Bhante, we're coming to the hour. There are currently three questions in Tier 1. Do you have the time to answer? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. If I notice that my mind has rambled away from the focus, do I just note thinking, or should I use a more descriptive label, like storytelling or imaginary conversation? I wouldn't go quite so descriptive. I mean, thinking is always fine, so you shouldn't worry about finding something. You can say imagining or talking if you imagine yourself talking to someone, but it's not necessary. If you see or hear, you can note that is much better. Regarding the interest one should have when observing an object, is 
saying the mantra as though one were speaking into the object, as described in the booklet, sufficient, or for this interest to be present? Yes. I find myself constantly thinking about real-world stuff during meditation. Although I note the distraction and any aversion, I still feel as if it is hindering my practice. Is there anything one can do? No, that's why we call it practice. So keep practicing. Okay, Bhante, those were the three. I mean, one thing you'll see here just about this question is uh, remember what we're trying to to see what, what seeing clearly really means. In essence, it refers to seeing the three characteristics, impermanent, suffering, and non-self. So here you're, the, the, the focus is on non-self, that you can't control it. You, you note it, but it still keeps coming, right? That's non-self. Suffering, you see how stressful it is. Impermanence, you can't predict when it's going to go, when it's going to come. It's unmanageable. That's what you're starting to see. I mean, basically starting to see that it's not worth clinging to. And that's the problem is that we cling to these things. So just keep seeing clearly like that. Eventually the mind will get it. It just takes practice. Okay, so thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ulu. Thank you, Jim. I think Ulu's here. I don't see him. I guess he's in the chat. Yes. Yeah, there he is. Thank you, guys. And thank everyone for coming. Good group today. Good questions. Appreciate it. Don't forget, if you want to check out in two hours from now, there will be a live stream with 15 qualities, 15, 15 blessings being discussed by a group of over 15 monastics from around the world. And you can find a link on Facebook, my Facebook page, and also I'll post a link in our Discord announcements. Have a good week, everyone. Sadhu. Thank you, Bhante. Sadhu.